I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if the Spirit of God came on Crossroads Church in Virgil in such a powerful way that in a single day, every student, every teacher, and every person who came into the vicinity of the school came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, was transformed by God, and became followers of Jesus. Just imagine that for a moment. I think it sounds a little far-fetched. It sounds maybe like you would read in a fantasy novel. But just keep that thought in mind. Because I'm going to share something that happened when a revival swept Northern Ireland 160 years ago, in 1859. And like every revival, this one was birthed in prayer. And it began when uh, a couple of years previously, four young men felt that they needed to get together and pray for a revival and to continue praying until God sent revival. And so they did, and he did. And he sent revival in 1859, and the records indicate that somewhere around 100,000 people came into the kingdom in Northern Ireland in that particular year. And the stories say that it was like a forest fire, that it, it just burst out spontaneously in a number of different towns and then spread throughout Northern Ireland. And amazing things happened. So I want to share something that happened in a town called Coleraine in the local school. And a school teacher seeing one young boy clearly under the conviction of sin advised him to go home and call upon the Lord in private. He sent with him an older boy who'd found peace with Jesus the day before. After these two boys had prayed for some time, the young boy was blessed with sacred peace and rejoicing, he returned to the school and with beaming face reported to his teacher, Sir, I am so happy I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. Strange words in cold times. Natural words in a time of revival. But the attention of the whole class was arrested. One boy after another silently slipped out of the classroom. And after a while, the school teacher looked out to see boys on their knees throughout the playground, each one in earnest prayer. He turned to the two boys and asked them, do you think you can go and pray with these boys? They did so, and kneeling down with one another, they began to implore the Lord to forgive their sins for the sake of him who had borne them all upon the cross. Silent grief soon turned into bitter cries. As these cries reached the girls' school, they too fell upon their knees and wept in grief over their sins. The cries of the boys and girls at school reached passers-by in the adjoining streets and conviction of sin came upon them and they fell on their knees in the streets pleading to the Lord for mercy. It seemed as if every available spot was filled with people seeking God. Pastors and men of prayer were sought and they spent the rest of the day in counseling and praying with those seeking God. The sweetest of all toils that the earth witnesses when men labor and intercede for those who are broken hearted by the sight of their sins. 
Dinner was forgotten, tea was forgotten, and it was not until 11 o'clock at night that the school premises were freed from their unexpected guests. So what God has done before, he can do again. What God did in that school in Coleraine, it's not science fiction, it's not fantasy. There are many accounts of this particular event. It happened. God can do Again, he can do it again. And what do we need to do? We need to be in fervent prayer that God will bring revival. We need to be like those four young men in Northern Ireland who felt compelled to pray and to keep praying until God moved. So I think that's, that's our role. That's our role to pray. So let's just do exactly that. So Father, we thank you so much. For these amazing stories that are down through the history of the church, of those times, Lord, that you've moved in power, those times that you have demonstrated over and over again that Pentecost is not a one-time thing, Lord. And we thank you, God, that we know that you can do it again. And Lord, we would pray that you would do it again. We would pray, Lord, that you will stir up in our hearts, Lord, a hunger to see you move. Lord, a passion for your name, a passion to see your kingdom come and your will to be done, Lord, here in this town, in this region, in this nation, in this world, Lord. Father, we pray that those words on which this nation were formed, Lord, those, those prophetic words from Psalm 72, Lord, that they would become true in our day, Lord, in our time, that truly, Lord, you would have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we ask this, that your name would be glorified. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you want to turn with me in your church Bibles to page 966, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 this morning. Acts 1, 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, It was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. 
Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Kevin, and it's my uh, my privilege this morning to take this passage of scripture from uh, the book of Acts, written by Dr. Luke many years ago. Uh, this historical account of the early church, and to um, see what would the Lord have for us today. We are in this series. We began last week um, in this uh, book, uh, where we are going to be doing. Um, as uh, John exhorted us already this morning to uh, remember what God has done in the past throughout the history of the church and to ask him uh, to do likewise and to move in our day uh, in, in this place for his uh, good namesake, for his glory, for our great joy. And um, and so last week we uh, talked about how Jesus gave his disciples a commission, a, commi- a commission to be witnesses in this world, like a witness of the resurrection, a witness to the resurrection. That, that's the mission of the church. He uh, gave this commission in many different ways. We call it the Great Commission. And uh, throughout the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to glory, which uh, is recorded just previous to this passage, um, he uh, taught his disciples over and over again that this is what I want you to be about. I want you to be about uh, being witnesses of me here in Jerusalem and then out to the next level of Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. I want you to be witnesses in word and in deed. I want you to testify to the historical truth of the resurrection and to experience the subjective experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want this to go out here to the ends of the earth. And your message over and over again is to me as to who I am, Jesus says. I want you to testify and to witness to who I am and all that I have done. Your witness is not to yourselves. Your witness isn't that you're awesome. Your witness isn't that your church is awesome. Your your witness is that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the one who died for uh, on our behalf and has risen again and that he will return. And uh, so his kingdom is the most real kingdom. So Jesus ascends to heaven in this uh, in this passage uh, just before this verses 9 to uh, to 11 you can read that uh, where Jesus ascends, is taken up into glory in bodily, um, in, in his body is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He's interceding for his church and he has told his disciples, I do not do anything yet. Gather, keep on gathering, keep on waiting. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. You will receive power so that you can be my witnesses. And so wait for the promise of the Father. Wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon you. And so his uh, disciples, his followers, uh, about 120 of them gather together in an upper 
room. We don't know if this is the same upper room that uh, where Jesus celebrated the Passover and instituted the Lord's Suppers on the night before he was betrayed, but it is an upper room. It's a, probably in a guest house in Jerusalem, a rented room above a home um, where at least 120 people can uh, gather together. So the first thing I want to notice this morning is who's in the room. I want us to pay attention to who exactly is in this room. There's about 120 of them, but we're, uh, Luke wants us to pay attention to a few who are there. He lists 11 names uh, in, a, in a string for us. These are often known as the apostles, the, uh, the 12 leaders uh, who follow Jesus day in and day out for three years throughout his ministry. They were uh, appointed by Jesus as um, to be leaders in the church. Peter, John, and James, his inner circle. They are the ones who witnesses who witnessed some special things with Jesus, the transfiguration. They were the ones who Jesus brought a little further into the garden. John and James are brothers, sons of Zebedee. Uh, Peter has a brother named Andrew. Andrew's the fourth listed there. Um, Peter, John, James, and Andrew were all fishermen from Galilee, um, and they left their nets. They left their families in order to follow Jesus. There's Philip, Thomas, doubting Thomas, who the one who was missing on, on one of the appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead and says, hey, I'm not going to believe that he's actually risen until I touch the place where his spear, until I touch his hands, until I can see for myself. And Jesus graciously shows up and meets with doubting Thomas. Bartholomew, who's also known as Nathaniel. Matthew, who's also known as Levi. Matthew was a tax collector, a traitor, a Jewish person who is sided with Rome, the oppressor, oppressing occupying forces in Israel. Matthew sided with them. He's hated. He's a, he's a duplicitous. He's become rich. Jesus shows up at his tax booth and says, Matthew, follow me and Matthew leaves his riches behind, leaves his way of life behind and begins to follow Jesus. James, the son of Alphaeus, we don't know a lot about him. Simon, the zealot, the zealot would refer to the fact that he was probably a political fanatic, that he was, uh, he would have hated Matthew and the tax collectors. He was, he was one who was calling for active resistance and rebellion against Rome. Let's rise up and fight. Let's let's kick some Roman tail. Let's get them out of here. And then Judas, the son of James. Judas, uh, it doesn't say here, but Judas spent the rest of his life saying, Hi, my name's Judas, not that Judas. <laughs> I grew up with someone named Michael Jackson. He lived on my street, and he, he always said, But not that Michael Jackson. And uh, Judas, uh, for the rest of his life, had to say, I'm not that Judas. Who's missing? Judas Iscariot is missing. But Peter is there, and I, I just want to even highlight the, this, this distinction, that Peter, it's a miracle that Peter's in the room, but Judas Iscariot's not. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed and the, the day he, he was crucified, both Peter and Judas, and in fact all 11, all, the, all, all of these guys, they all deserted Jesus. But some did so in a more overt way. Um, in, in the upper room, as uh, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus says, all of you are going to fall away 
from me tonight. You're going to actually all stop following me tonight. I'm going to be arrested, crucified, and killed, and you guys are all going to desert me. And Peter, as he's wont to do, speaks up and he says, Lord, I, I really am not all that surprised that these other guys are going to desert you, but I will never desert you. I, I am ready to be arrested with you and even to die for you. He says, these, even if all of these other guys do, Lord, I am not going to desert you. I am staying true to you, and I will, I will continue to witness to you. I am loyal to you. My allegiance is fully, completely to you. And Jesus, as you probably know, says, Peter, your confidence is, is in yourself is, is too strong. Actually, tonight, before the rooster crows in the morning, this very evening, you are going to deny even knowing me three times. And um, and and Peter does that as Jesus is arrested and all the disciples run away. One even runs away naked. Um, like they, they just turn tail, they drop everything and run. Peter kind of follows along. He keeps a distance, but he's following along, wants to see what's happening to Jesus. And as the, Jesus is in the... Um, and on trial, Jesus, Peter's just kind of outside the house and a servant girl says, hey, aren't you uh, a, a disciple of Jesus? And he's like, nope. Come on, no, do you, uh, you're a pump, you know, you've got the, you've got the Galilean accent. I can tell you're one of those. You, you obviously are. And he's like, no, I do not know the man. And then someone else comes along and says, you're also one of his disciples. And Peter begins to curse and swear and say, I do not know him. I'm not one of them. And immediately the rooster crows and Jesus looks over and catches Peter's eye. And it says Peter goes out and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He knew that he had let his master down. He knew that he had betrayed the allegiance, that he was so confident in himself, and yet, here he is, he's fallen again. He's fallen again. He's, at, he's spoken rashly again, and he has betrayed the one who loves him so well. Judas Iscariot, as you know, is the betrayer who, um, the scriptures say, really never really did follow Jesus with his whole heart. He became the treasurer of the group, and he um, kind of had his hand in the bag and was filling some of some of the money in the in the from the group and putting it into his own pocket. Was really in following Jesus for what he could get out of Jesus, and he was sure that Jesus would usher in a kingdom, a political kingdom, and so uh, he's vying for a cabinet seat, and so he's um, he, he's looking for riches, he's looking for power and wealth. If, to come from following Jesus, and he's getting frustrated. And so he actually goes to the authorities, and he turns Jesus in and becomes a witness against Jesus and becomes the betrayer, you know, uh, with a kiss um, and betrays Jesus. He's also remorseful. Peter goes out, he weeps bitterly, he's full of remorse, and so does Judas. But here, 50 days later, in the upper room, Judas is dead, but Peter's there. What's the difference? What's the difference? Friends, you and I, each one of us, are going to let Jesus down. Are going to fail in our, in our, the way, the, the thoughts of our hearts, 
the, the things in which, by the, the way in which we love things, by the words we speak, by the actions we do, we're going to betray our allegiance to Jesus. We're going to let him down at times. Jesus visits Peter. When Jesus rose from the dead, um, one of the and he appears to some of the women. He gives them a message, and they come back to the disciples, and uh, and he says, "The Lord is risen, and he has appeared to Simon, to Simon Peter." The angel actually gives the um, the message to the women, and, and and says to the women, "Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's risen." I want you to make sure that Peter knows. And Jesus had a, had a, a personal interaction with Peter. He came and visited Peter. We don't know what happened in the midst of that, but we can, we know that Jesus' heart is one of grace, of restoration, of forgiveness, of renewal. And then there's a public re- restoration of Peter on the beach as Jesus um, makes breakfast for his friends who had been out fishing. And he three times asks Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Judas brought his sin and, and held on to it. And it crushed him. And he brought his sin to the grave. Peter brought his sin and his failure. And he brought it to Jesus. And Jesus restored him. That's the difference. That's the difference. Friends, when you, when you fail, don't hold on. Don't be crushed. Buy it. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. He'll, he'll restore you. He loves to restore fallen people. Judas isn't in the room, but Peter is. There's a group of women in the room, it says, and the women. Along with the women, this is a group of women who supported Jesus from their income. We don't know all of their names. Some of them are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. These are the first witnesses actually to the resurrection. Luke gives a prominent place to women throughout his writings in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. Uh, Richard Longnecker, uh, a New Testament scholar and resident of Niagara-on-the-Lake, says, Given the culture's usual downplaying of women's public roles, the equal participation of women is noteworthy, especially their apparent mixing with men. Jesus has always lifted up women and, and, uh, in, per, and allowed them to participate in his ministry in worldly uh, ways in which the dominant culture did not allow. And then it says, so there's women in the room, and, and then it says, Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the last time that Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned in the scriptures. Luke uh, obviously is acquainted with her. He's obviously interviewed her. He spends the most time on Mary's story out of all the gospel writers. And um, he, uh, he lifts her up as an example of humble faith and of surrender and trust. In the Lord Jesus, uh, Mary uh, eventually did marry Joseph, and um, contrary to some uh, traditions, Mary did not remain a perpetual virgin. She had other children. She had at least four more sons. You can read about them in Matthew 13 or Mark chapter 6, Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, verse 3. Four sons that are, are mentioned, um, 
Judas. Uh, again, not that Judas. Uh, Joseph, Simon, and James. So Judas, Jude, uh, wrote a book in the New Testament named Jude. James, Jesus' other ha- half-brother, uh, wrote, also wrote a book in the Bible called James. So the book of James isn't written by James or James the son of Alphaeus, the apostles. James is written by the brother of the Lord Jesus, Mary's and Joseph's son. And it says multiple daughters. So they had a large family. They had at least two, two daughters. It doesn't say how many. Four more sons. Jesus is the firstborn son. So five sons, two, at least two uh, girls. That's at least seven kids in the family. Now, why am I highlighting it? I think it's significant that Jesus' family is worshiping him. How many moms in the room? Hands up if you're a mom. Okay, we're going to celebrate you next week. Keep your hands up. Moms, keep your hands up. How many of you uh, are would, would ever have the idea of worshiping your child as a sinless savior? Now... I know some moms whose kids can do no wrong. Right? So, okay. Not my Johnny. He would never. Right? We all know the mom. Wouldn't be my child. His brothers are in the room. How many of you have a, in your family had a firstborn, you have an older brother and he's the firstborn in the family. That's my family. I have an older brother and he's the firstborn in the family. How many of you, if you had to choose between him being Satan incarnate or a sinless deity, would choose Satan, right? (laughs) Jesus' mother and brothers are in the room, worshiping Jesus as a sinless deity. No one knows you better than the family, your family of origin. No one knows your faults. No one knows your foibles, no one knows you better, and no one knows all the ways in which you are so messed up better than your parents and your siblings. And here are Jesus' brothers and sisters and his mother worshiping him as a sinless deity. I think that's significant. I think that's significant. Take it for what you want. What are they doing? They're in the upper room. They are in united, persistent prayer. What characterizes these ten days for Jesus' uh, followers is united, persistent prayer. The translation we read says they were continually united in prayer. The way in which they prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit was in prayer. They were all continually united in prayer. It's emphatic language that Luke wants us to pay attention to. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to gathering together to pray. They did so together. And in fact, at every turning point in the redemptive action of God in the book of Acts, at every turning point, as John mentioned earlier as well, in every turning point in the history of the church, we see the church together, united, agreeing in prayer. They were together. They were united. It says they were of one heart, of one mind, of one passion. They were agreeing together in prayer. 
I read, if you follow along in our reading plan, um, Matthew 18 was this week, and Jesus says, if, if, if two of you agree about something on earth in prayer, it'll be done for you. There's power in agreeing together in prayer. And he follows that up. The next verse, we, we say it for things like this, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. Jesus, that verse is in the context of united prayer, corporate prayer. They were united in prayer. They were of one heart, of one mind, of one passion. They had one desire. And they, they were pouring that passion and that agreement and that unity out in prayer. Unity often comes through prayer. Unity often comes through prayer. It's hard to be in conflict and hard to have hard feelings with someone with whom you pray often. Are you in conflict with a a friendship? Could you gather to pray and be of one heart and one mind in prayer? Experiencing conflict in your marriage, in your life group, in in a congregation? Gather together to pray. And it, they, it says they continued in prayer. They were continually. There's a, an emphasis in the, in the Greek language here on the, their persistence in prayer. They, they prayed and they didn't give up. They prayed persistently. It's, it's where the, the term prevailing prayer comes actually from this text here. That they prevailed in prayer. They persisted in prayer. They prayed and they didn't give up. That's how they prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They're continually and constantly resolute and persistent. Jesus says, Luke chapter 18, Jesus teaches, he says, he wanted to teach them to, that, that we ought to always pray and not to give up, not to lose heart. Don't give up in praying. And so he tells a parable of a persistent widow. And he says there's a judge, and he's a, he's a judge who really didn't care for people or justice or anything. He was just kind of caring for himself. But there was a widow who came and brought her concern to this judge, and he really had, had to push her off, but she just continued to come and continued to come. And, and he's finally he's like, just because she's pestering me so much, I will finally give this widow what she wants. Now, God isn't a unconcerned and unjust judge, but J- Jesus' point there is that we ought to always pray and not to give up. We ought to persist in our prayers. We ought to continue and be resolute and persistent in our prayers. Why do we need to be persistent? Why the need for persistence in prayer? Is God just so reluctant to answer? I think the truth is that we may not be so ready to receive. The need for persistence is because we may not yet be ready to receive what he has for us. And prayer changes our hearts. Prayer readies our hearts to receive. It changes our minds. It changes our will. It changes our emotions. To align with God's heart. To align with God's mind. To align with God's emotions. To align with God's will. And so let's not give up. Let us not give up in prayer. We're coming out of a a month-long season of prayer and fasting that, um, that we've called our church to. And you might be saying, well, I haven't seen the answer to what I wanted. We haven't seen revival in the way in which we've wanted yet. Let's not give up. That wasn't meant to be a one-month thing that, oh, that was, that was nice and let's move on to other things. It's 
to whet our appetites for a life of devotion to persistent united prayer. So let's continue to gather together in our life groups, in our families for prayer. Let's continue to pray together. Let's continue to fast. Make that an active and continual rhythm of our lives. There's a group that gathers here every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the room just out here to pray for this gathering. Come and join that group for pre-service prayer. We have a prayer summit coming up last Sunday in May, 7 o'clock. Come and gather for prayer. We're going to continue having seasons of prayer where, where there's especially concerted times and efforts to, to rallying ourselves together in prayer. We must be united and agreeing and persistent. In prayer. And prayer always precedes our work, our doing. You see, Jesus had called his disciples. He had called this group of people. He's, he's commissioned them. He's given them this task, right? This great do, this great task. Reach the world, the ends of the earth. I know you guys don't have an airplane or a map, but bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And they pray. They begin by praying. I think that's instructive. The, the church throughout history has a Latin phrase called ora et labora, pray and work. And, it's, and the order is important, pray and work. Jesus calls us to prayerful dependence and to diligent work, but the prayerful dependence comes first. And then I want us just to pay attention really quickly to uh, uh, this decision-making process that the church has in replacing Judas. That there's this account in the second half of chapter 1 of uh, the church at Peter's uh, initiative uh, choosing to replace Judas as an apostle. Now, this is historical literature. This is the genre that we're reading here is historical. So it's not necessarily prescriptive. And we need to keep that in mind as we go through Acts, that not everything we uh, say here, read here, is necessarily prescribed for us today. So there's an account of, you know, Paul's handkerchief, that if you could get wiped with Paul's handkerchief, then you could be healed. It doesn't mean that God's calling us to the handkerchief ministry today. It's it's saying this is what happened then, so it's not necessarily prescriptive. It's more descriptive. So it doesn't mean, as we read this, that, oh, a church needs to have 12 leaders. Peter's saying, hey, we're left with 11 now. We need to replace Judas so that we get back up to 12. It doesn't mean that we have to start casting lots for our decisions. In fact, this is the last New Testament example of um, the church making a decision by casting of a lot. Probably, most uh, scholars agree that this is the last casting of lots because the Holy Spirit comes. And so in order to discern God's will, we don't have to roll the dice anymore. We can ask the Holy Spirit who lives in us and lives among his this community. And so, um, so our job, our task, as we come to a passage like this, is to uh, dig out some of the timeless principles from some of the descriptive uh, things that happen here in this passage. And once again, I'm, I think uh, Ajit Fernando's scholarship on pulling out some of these principles is um, just really instructive for us. And so here are some principles that Fernando highlights in his commentary on Acts as to how the church made this decision as to, um, first of all, that, that they should replace Judas and how they ought 
to do that. He highlights the scriptural and theological reflection that's taking place. And you actually see this in every key community decision throughout the book of Acts. As a church has to make a decision, they reflect on what does the scripture say? And they make theological, and they reflect on the theological implications of that. And so they're not just making decisions pragmatically. What seems to make the most sense? Common sense. What's, what's the cheapest option? What's the, they're, they're reflecting firstly and on the, on the, and deeply on the theological implications and the scriptural implications of decisions. And so Peter says, and this is, this is great. This is a great, great verse. It was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that who spoke it? Who spoke the scripture? The Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas. He's saying actually Judas's role was prophesied by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of Judas, through the mouth of David. David wrote it. David spoke it, but the Holy Spirit spoke it which is really our theology of Scripture. Our theology of Scripture is called the inspiration of Scripture, that the Scripture is breathed out by God through human instruments. So David wrote it, but the Holy Spirit spoke it. Did David really write it? Yes. Did the Holy Spirit really write it? Yes. We believe in the inspiration of the scripture. And so that's why it's authoritative. The scripture is authoritative for us. That's why we need to, as we make decisions, dig into the scripture and say, well, what does the scripture have to say? And so Peter takes and he, he quotes two different Psalms that David wrote and which, uh, he takes to, um, to the community and says, this is why we need to replace Judas. That's why someone else should take his position because, um, through the theological, I'm not going to dig all into exactly how these um, these different psalms apply. That most likely, uh, they felt they needed 12 leaders because uh, Israel had 12 tribes, and the church is the fulfillment of Israel's story. And so, the original church needed 12 tribes, um, 12 leaders, um, in in the to witness to the resurrection of Jesus to the Jews. Um, so that's what most scholars are saying as to how this, but the, but the, I think the timeless principle for us here is that the church turned first to the scripture and reflected deeply on the theological implications of that. Also note the interplay between the congregation, the larger group and leaders. Peter takes the initiative. Peter gives directions. Peter uh, says, here, these are the qualities that we're looking for in a witness to the resurrection as an apostle. They needed to have been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. They needed to have been with us together. They need to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. Here's the, here's the qualities. And the congregation then says, hey, here's the two people that fit these descriptions, who fit this criteria. There's a Back and forth, there's an interplay between a congregation and its leaders in making decisions. And then again, leaders direct people to God's word and to God's will. Since Jesus is the true leader of the church, human leaders of the church must direct people to God's will, to God's word, for ultimately, and then pray for guidance. They pray for guidance. Every major decision in the life of Jesus 
He spends a night in prayer. He chooses his disciples, his apostles. What is it? What was he doing the night before? He prayed. Every major decision that Jesus makes throughout his life was preceded by prayer, asking, Lord, we need your, Father, I need your guidance and direction. And every major decision in the life of the church must be preceded by prayer. Lord, you know the hearts. You know everyone's heart. You know every, you know things better than we do. Yours is, you, you know all things. You are eternally wise. You are the only wise God. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. You've given us the Holy Spirit. So lead us. We surrender in prayer and ask for God's guidance. You might say, well, who's in the room? Apostles, women. Jesus' family, what are they doing? They're united in prayer. They're persisting in prayer. And they make decisions. What's the call? What's, what's the bottom line for us this morning? Bottom line, I think, for us is that we seek not our own will, but the will of him who sent us. So that we can be a witness with power to the risen Jesus. We seek not our own will. How do we do that? In prayer, together, in our life groups, in our families. We make decisions not for ourselves. We make decisions not in isolation. We make decisions together. We seek not our own will, but the will of him who sent us. Why? So that we can be a witness to the power of the risen Jesus. His, his power to forgive and restore and renew fallen people like Peter. And his desire to bring new people into his kingdom, into his family. So would you pray with me? So Father, would your word bear fruit in our lives today for your glory, for the, the good of your church, and for, the, uh, for our health as a witness to the world that Jesus is truly risen from the dead, that you, Jesus, are Lord, that yours is the name above every name, that you have conquered death, that you've conquered sin, And that uh, you are coming again to judge the living and the dead and to usher in a kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So empower us, Lord, as a church who are persistent and united in prayer, who love to restore friendships, who are known for, for, for making friends with people who used to not be friends. Peter, like, people like Levi and Simon the Zealot, Restoring people like Peter who've fallen. Experiencing your grace again and again. Make us a people, Lord, who are united in our decision making as we seek your word, as we seek your will, as we seek your guidance, and as we seek to to be witnesses to the resurrection in Niagara and Canada and to every nation on the face of the planet. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. This is our connection time. We've, God's called us together to be a community. So connect with some folks, grab a coffee, get your kids. We have worship um, and prayer in a few moments.